Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award and release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me as always is my co-host Blaine Dower. How are you this morning, Blaine? I'm doing well. How about you? Good, thank you. This time out, we are looking at the 39th Annual Academy Awards, covering films released in 1966, and the Best Picture winner of that year, A Man for All Seasons, directed by Fred Zinnemann. The film premiered on December 12, 1966, and featured Paul Schofield as Sir Thomas More, Wendy Hiller as his wife Alice More, Leo McKern as Thomas Cromwell, and Robert Shaw as King Henry VIII. The film's screenplay was written by Robert Bolt, based upon his play of the same name. Our synopsis comes from the fine folks at Wikipedia. During a private late-night meeting at Hampton Court, Cardinal Wolsey, Lord Chancellor of England, chastises Thomas More for being the only member of the Privy Council to oppose Wolsey's attempts to obtain from the Pope an annulment of Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragorn as their marriage has not produced a male heir. With the annulment, Henry would be able to marry Anne Boleyn, with whom he hopes to father such an heir, and avoid a repeat of the Wars of the Roses. Moore says that he cannot agree to Wolsey's suggestion that they apply pressure on church property and revenue in England. Unknown to Moore, the conversation is being overheard by Wolsey's aide, Thomas Cromwell. Returning to his home at Chelsea at dawn, Moore finds his young acquaintance Richard Rich, waiting for his return so as to lobby for a position at court. Moore instead offers Rich a job as a teacher. Rich declines Moore's offer, saying that teaching would offer him little chance to become well-known. Moore finds his daughter Meg chatting with a brilliant young lawyer, William Roper, who announces his desire to marry her. The devoutly Catholic Moore says he cannot give his blessing as long as Roper remains a Lutheran. Sometime later, Wolsey dies in a rural monastery in disgrace after banishment from court, for failing to obtain the papal annulment Henry wanted. Henry appoints Moore Lord Chancellor of England. The king makes an impromptu visit to the Moore estate and again requests Moore's support for an annulment. But Moore remains unmoved as Henry alternates between threats, tantrums, and promises of unbounded royal favor. As the king leaves, Cromwell promises Rich a position at court in return for damaging information about Moore. Roper, learning of Moore's quarrel with the king, says that his religious views have altered considerably and declares that by attacking the church, the king has become the devil's minister. Moore is admonishing Roper to be more guarded when Rich arrives, pleading again for a position at court. When Moore again refuses, Rich denounces Moore's steward as a spy for Thomas Cromwell. An unmoved Moore responds, Of course, that's one of my servants. Humiliated, Rich joins Cromwell in attempting to bring Moore down. Meanwhile, the king orders Parliament and the bishops to declare him supreme head of the Church of England. 
The bishops in Parliament accede to the king's demands and renounce all allegiance to the Pope. Moore quietly resigns as Lord Chancellor rather than accept this new order. His close friend, Thomas Howard, the third Duke of York, attempts to draw out his opinions in a friendly private chat, but Moore knows that the time for speaking openly of such matters is over. In a meeting with Norfolk, Cromwell implies that Moore's troubles will be over if he will attend the king's wedding to Boleyn. After Moore does not, he is summoned again to the royal palace of Hampton Court, where Cromwell interrogates Moore inside Wolsey's former office. Moore refuses to answer, and an infuriated Cromwell reveals that the king views Moore as a traitor, but allows him to leave. The Thames boatmen are aware of the king's hostility to Moore and refuse to ferry him, so Moore returns home on foot. As Moore finally arrives, his daughter Meg informs him that a new oath is being circulated, and that all must take it or face charges of high treason. Initially, Moore says that he might be willing to take the oath, depending upon its wording. After learning that it names the king as supreme head of the church, and allows no legal or moral loopholes, Moore refuses to take it and is imprisoned in the Tower of London. Moore remains steadfast in his refusal to take the oath, and refuses to explain, knowing that he cannot be convicted if he has not explicitly denied the king's supremacy. A request for new books to read backfires, resulting in the confiscation of the books he has, and Rich removes them from Moore's cell, providing an opportunity for Rich to further debate Moore. Moore says goodbye to his family, urging them not to try to defend him, but to leave the country. Soon after, he is brought to trial, with Cromwell appearing as counsel for the prosecution. Moore refuses to express an opinion about the king's second marriage, or why he will not take the oath. As an experienced lawyer and judge, he cites his silence as part of his defense, based upon the legal precedent that silence is to be interpreted as consent. Cromwell calls Rich to testify. Rich alleges that when he went to confiscate Moore's books, Moore told him that while Parliament has the power to dethrone the king, it does not have the authority to make the king the head of the church. A horrified Moore offers to take any oath required by the court that he never said any such thing to Rich. Moore adds that he would never be so suicidal as to entrust so dangerous an opinion to such a man as that. As the rich leaves the witness box, it emerges that Rich has been made Attorney General for Wells as a reward from Cromwell for committing perjury, much to Moore's chagrin. Under a direct order from Cromwell, the jury convicts Moore without leaving the courtroom to deliberate. As the judges begin to pronounce the death penalty, Moore interrupts and reminds them that prisoners are to be asked before sentencing a they have anything to say. Upon being so asked by the judges, Moore declares, I do. Moore calls the Parliament's act of supremacy repugnant to every legal precedent and institution in all the history of Christendom. He cites the biblical foundation for the patrine primacy and the authority of the papacy rather than national governments over the church. Moore further declares that the church's freedom from state control and interference is guaranteed both in Magna Carta and in the king's coronation oath. An uproar ensues. The judges pronounce sentencing according to the standard form. Moore is to be remitted to the tower to await execution by beheading. The scene switches from the court to Tower Hill, where Moore observes custom by pardoning and tipping the executioner. Moore declares, I die his majesty's good servant, but God's first. He kneels at the block, and off screen, the executioner cuts off Moore's head. A narrator intones an epilogue, listing the subsequent untimely deaths of the major characters, apart from Richard Rich, who became Chancellor of England and died in his bed. And thus ends A Man for All Seasons.
I guess I'll start with, was this your first time watching it playing? It was, yes. How about you? Not the first time, but the first time in several years. In high school, we had studied the play, and I believe as part of studying the play, we watched the film. Okay. Yeah. We didn't cover this particular play in high school. What were your thoughts? I think it's actually a well-made movie. It didn't really blow me away, but again, if you when I sat back to, to look at it, I couldn't think of areas that really jumped out at me as being open to a lot of improvement. And it, it came in with a mission. It told the story well. I'm not terribly familiar with the historical events, so I don't know how accurate it's portrayed. And it, it's very possible that this kind of thing could be very one-sided, you know, showing all of Moore's strengths, but none of his flaws, whatever that right. may be. So I can't speak to the historical accuracy in that regard. But this is one of those movies where, yeah, it wouldn't immediately jump to mind as a Best Picture nominee or Best Picture winner when I'm watching it. But when I can't think of ways to improve it, then it's hard to object to its status and receiving that nomination. I, I agree. I I find myself liking this quite a bit, and I think it's carried a lot by the performances of Schofield and McKern. You can tell it's more so than a musical like My Fair Lady, which we recently covered. You can definitely tell that its origin is in a play, but it has that it has that more expansive feel that a good film adaptation of a play can give you. I'll contrast it a little bit with another nominee from this year, which we'll talk more about later, but Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is also based on a play, and while there's an entire house that most of the play, most of the film is supposed to take place in, it's one of those films to where it's predominantly set in a living room, because you know, on stage, that was the one set that they used for the majority of the play, but there's a lot of going outside in the film, and a lot of long trips. And even themes, even, excuse me, even things that seem, that would seem unnecessary, like the very leisurely opening credits of the film where the Cardinal sends for more and the messenger has to travel all the way to Chelsea DeMore's house and then he fetches more and they travel all the way back. Even that has, has a purpose because, because later, when Moore is forced to walk home, you have a greater appreciation for how long that trip would have had to uh, have been. So I thought that was a nice touch. And I, I know anytime you have an adaptation from a play or another source, some of the language that you like is more likely due to the source material. But since it was adapted by the playwright, I, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think there's as much plagiarism is the wrong word, but I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a lot of language in this that I like. I was just listening to Paul and some and uh, Scott discuss, Scott Gardner discuss a movie recently on is it Jaws? And one of Scott Gardner's criteria are always is the film eminently quotable? And you know, while I haven't seen this film or read the play and you know, gosh, going over 30 years now, you know, I give the devil the benefit of law for mine own sakes, and it profits a man nothing 
to gain the world at the cost of his soul, Richard, but for Wales, those two, those have always stuck with me. So it, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I do have a tendency to, in my mind, to confuse this with another film, 1964's Beckett, which is also based on a play, because the plots are very similar. You know, friend of a king is elevated to a high political position because of morals. The friend can't, or the king, the friend can't acquiesce to the king's wishes, and it leads to the downfall of the friend. And it's Sir Thomas, it's uh, Sir Thomas More and Saint Thomas Becket. So because of the first names are Thomas of the Leeds in both of them, I I tend to get them confused quite a bit. Yeah, and I will give you that. A lot of the dialogue here is resonant, and yeah, this is one of those movies where so much of it is carried by the cast, like you said, and Schofield in particular does a fantastic job. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. Well, he's an actor that I think very few people will be familiar with, because as as I was reading his bio, you know, obviously because he was in this, he... He was a stage actor who crossed over into film, but he crossed over into film so infrequently. You know, the only other film that people may know him from would be Quiz Show from 94. These aren't the only two films that he did, but, you know, when you compare and contrast him with someone like an Olivier or a Richard Burton or a Sir John Gilgood, he had that same level of stage career, but dipped into film much more infrequently than any of those did. Certainly, yeah. Going through his IMDb, he's got 20 TV credits and 21 film credits. And some of these are uncredited roles, believe it or not. After mm-hmm. this film, he was the main judge in the Red Tent in 1969, and that was an uncredited role. He was the lead in King Lear in 1970, but that one doesn't seem to have lasted. So yeah, I would think... His next most prominent, I would agree with you, is a quiz show from 94 is Mark Van Doren, which we'll discuss at least on some level when we get there, because it was also nominated for Best Picture. Actually, the only year so far where I had seen all Best Picture nominees before the nominations were released. So, yeah, he he definitely stands out, but he also seems humble, and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later. But he was nominated for the Academy Award in this film. And having seen the competition, he didn't bother going to the award show because he didn't think he had a chance of winning. We also have, because of her, she is not as prominent in the film, but I I listed her in where I did in the credits because of her preeminence from an Academy perspective. Wendy Hiller, who plays Alice Moore, his wife, I... Because she's not part of the central conflict, she's not in it as much. But I thought she was great in it as well. You know, both as the loving wife who doesn't give a damn for his principles, but just wants him to live. And I also liked, it quickly takes a back seat, but there's a really good kind of loving secondary conflict over the way he raises their daughter. There's a lot of subtext there because, and Susanna York plays the daughter, Meg, but you can tell that he's given her a lot of schooling that would be atypical 
for a young woman of her position at the time and allows her a lot of freedom of speech and thought. And Alice seems to be much more traditional than that. So some of the back and forth they have at the beginning of the film, I like quite a bit. She was, she's nominated this year. This would be her third nomination. She was nominated, uh, gosh, all the way back when Pygmalion, again, going to My Fair Lady, was first nominated. Um, she was the first on-screen Eliza Doolittle in that film. And she won in 1958, I think, for Best Supporting Actress for um, Separate Tables, which neither of us had seen, so we um, hadn't commented on much. But this would be her third nomination this year for her role as Alice. Okay. And of course, we discussed Susanna York before because she was in Tom Jones. And we should point out that Rich was played by John Hurt. Yes. Cardinal Wolsey was Orson Welles. This has an incredible cast. And yeah. Fred Zinneman had said this was the easiest movie he ever made because the cast and crew were just so absolutely professional. They just showed up and did their jobs. And they were so good at their jobs. He didn't have to give a lot of input which is saying something. So it's it's nice to have the director saying, yo, they, these guys didn't need direction on almost any level for the most part. They just came in and they, they did the job and here's the movie we got. And I think a lot of that speaks to the strength of the script. So much of this is about the dialogue and the subtlety in the dialogue. There's a lot of meanings and sort of twists, but it's still proper time. So the insults could not be as blatant. It was socially unacceptable. So, yeah, so much of this is just tight dialogue, and these guys knew how to do it, they knew how to shoot it, they knew how to deliver it. So this is a gripping movie that could have easily been a gripping novel or a gripping play, because it's just dialogue. The the one thing I think you could not effectively adapt this to would be the silent film, because it would just be way too many intertitles. No, I agree. And, well, and the characters are so, particularly Cromwell and Wolsey and Moore are so fiercely cunning and intelligent. I don't know if this comes through in the synopsis or not, but Moore, for probably at least a good four or five years, there because there's an undefined passage of time, right? Mm-hmm. He so perfectly, or as perfectly as he can, threads a needle between staying true to his convictions and not exposing himself and giving his enemies ammunition with which to bring him down. You know, in case it didn't come clear in the synopsis for our listeners, and I'm hoping before they've listened to this, they've watched the film, but just in case they haven't, Rich clearly commits perjury in this. So what he... When he says, no, I heard, you know, more say this, he was blatantly lying. That's what they had to stoop to to bring him down. He never showed his hand until the very end when he had already been committed to death. Yeah, and just to back that up, there's one scene that I don't remember coming up in the synopsis when even Alice's wife is saying, why are you doing this? Tell me what your objections are. And because he hasn't told her why he's refusing to take the oath or to do these things. And he turns around, puts her hand on the Bible and says, okay, if you swear right now, did I tell you anything about this? Did I tip my hand and say what's happening on penalty of your eternal soul? You know, what, what have I said? She goes, you've said nothing. 
And that's why it has to stay that way. So he kept silent. Even his wife, his family, they didn't know the particulars of why he was taking the stance that he was taking to protect them. He was incredibly careful. So yeah, you're right. He angered people, but there was no honest way to convict him and punish him for it. And he was so... The character as portrayed is such a man of words and letters. And you can tell, above all other things, he's a lawyer. I, I mentioned it earlier, but one of my favorite things have always has always, or quotes from this film, has always been that line, you know. I give the devil the benefit of law for mine own sake. Because he goes on to say, if you, you know, if you don't uphold the law and you let all those laws fall down, what's going to protect you, you know? And that's, that, that's always stood with me and been part of my, part of my makeup. And then when the oath of fealty comes out, you know, and his daughter's just like, they've got you now because of course you refuse he's like no i need to read it what are the words because if they use the right words or you know perhaps from their perspective the wrong words if they're just ambivalent enough he would have taken that oath in a heartbeat if he could have said those words and felt like they did not have a meaning that violated his principles he would have taken that oath mm-hmm Yeah, he was hopeful of a loophole and confident that if there was one, he would find it. And he probably was. For the the full devil and benefit of the law conversation, I've got that quote up from the IMDb here. And it starts with Roper saying, oh, so now you give the devil the benefit of the law? Moore's response is, yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? Yes, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. Oh, and when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper? The law is all being flat. This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down, and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes, I'd give the devil the benefit of law for my own safety's sake. So he's, yeah, not just as he's saying give the devil the benefit of the law, but he is saying do not compromise your principles Mm -hmm. and stand true. Well, there's also a sense of be prudent in your actions. You know, that that law that you're seeking to strike down in the name of expediency, what is that law doing? You know, what are the, what are the consequences of striking that down before you strike it down? Yeah. And there's a lot of times that people don't think the consequences through speaking as a teacher, I've had people complain that schools are not public property. They are private property owned by public corporations and they don't see the distinction until you point out that's how they can say, oh, people are trespassing and control who's on the property, right? There are some people who should not be that close to children, and if schools were public property, it couldn't be prevented. Right. There's there's other instances like that. If we look more at the pandemic that we are hopefully emerging from at the time of this recording, and will hopefully be over by the time people hear it, um, at least locally, a lot of people were complaining at first when they were shutting businesses down. We've got legalized marijuana here in Alberta. And people were complaining that the liquor stores and the cannabis stores were among those that remained open as essential services. Because they're saying, well, why do we need to consider these essential services? And it's not because the use of those compounds was considered essential. It's because the last thing that they needed was to throw a bunch of people that are going through withdrawal into the ICU along with the COVID patients. 
It was about keeping them out of the hospitals. Mm-hmm. A lot of times for, there's consequences people don't see, myself included. For years, I was adamantly opposed to any corporate bailout money coming out of tax dollars until someone pointed out, yeah, there's no, it may not be an option of $3 billion tax dollars or zero tax dollars. It may be the option of $3 billion tax dollars on the corporate bailout or $5 billion tax dollars on the unemployment payments that would come out in the three months if they fold. So again, we need to follow through. And that's something that Thomas More did well. When you say he's a man of words, it's not mentioned in the film, but the real Thomas More was the author of Utopia. So he had that novel published a good 10 years before the events in these films start unfolding. The Wikipedia synopsis does give a time frame for it. It says that the film covers the years 1529 to 1535. I suspect you omitted that because that is not something that the film states in any way, shape, or form. Correct. That would be someone who's familiar with history saying, okay, well, you know, these, this event was in 1529 in the first scene and the events in the last scene were 1535. So therefore, yeah, so that that is the time frame we're looking at. And he published Utopia in 1516. But again, that's information people are adding to the plot synopsis, which is not present on screen at any point in time. Correct. There's no title card that establishes really place or time or anything like that. What did you think of Robert Shaw as Henry VIII? I actually quite liked him in this role. I'm getting to like him more and more. Up to this point, I had really only known him from Jaws and the Sting. And in neither of those is he as playful as he could be here, but he can also turn on a dime, which is quite possibly what's going on with the original Henry VIII. I mean, we're talking about an era where he went through wife after wife after wife because none of them would give him a son, and nobody stopped to think, um, maybe it's not the woman's fault? which is something we clearly understand now. I don't know if this was necessarily Shaw's intent, but he plays the role almost manically, and I really like that. That's an actor bringing a great interpretation to the role, because as someone who's studied the play, while the language, you know, as we said, is there, reading it, you don't get the... There's a reading of that scene at Moore's house where the king does not seem manic and to be swinging from pole to pole. So I thought that was a really good interpretation of something to, of something unique to bring to it on Shaw's part. Um, shall we go through the awards ceremony? Since we're, sure. a lot of our conversation is now skirting what's happening there anyway. <laughs> so this was broadcast on April 10th, 1967, and just barely, because the unions involved were on a strike that was settled three hours before broadcast, and they only found out that, yes, they were going on the air 30 minutes prior to the time they were supposed to go on the air. So it took place at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Santa Monica, California, hosted by Bob Hope, produced by Joe Pasternak, and directed by Richard Dunlap. So the Best Picture winner was obviously Man for All Seasons, The other nominees were Alfie, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, The Sand Pebbles, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Best Director went to Fred Zinneman for A Man for All Seasons, beating out Michelangelo Antonioni for Blow Up, Claude Lelouch for A Man and a Woman, Richard Brooks for The Professionals, and Mike Nichols' directorial debut for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Best Actor went to Paul Schofield for A Man for All Seasons as Sir Thomas More, and it was actually collected by Wendy Hiller, 
who played his wife on screen because he wasn't there thinking he's not going to win. When he was nominated against Alan Arkin for The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, Richard Burton for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Michael Caine for Alfie, and Steve McQueen for The Sand Pebbles. And given that lineup, I don't blame Schofield for doubting his chances. <laughs> Best Actress went to Elizabeth Taylor for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, beating out Anouk Amier for A Man and a Woman, Ida Kaminsky for The Shop on Main Street, Lynn Redgrave for Georgie Girl, and her sister Vanessa Redgrave for Morgan. And this is, to date, the only year where all five Best Actress nominees were born outside of the U.S. And it was the second time that Sisters had been nominated. Best Supporting Actor went to Walter Matthau for The Fortune Cookie, beating out Mako for The Sand Pebbles, James Mason for Georgie Girl, George Seagal for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and Robert Shaw for A Man for All Seasons. Best Supporting Actress went to Sandy Dennis for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, beating out Wendy Hiller for A Man for All Seasons. Jocelyn Lagarde for Hawaii, Vivian Marchant for Alfie, and Geraldine Page for You're a Big Boy Now. And I I think it's worth mentioning that, yeah, Wendy Hiller was nominated in the supporting category despite probably being the most prominent female role, next to perhaps Susanna York as Meg. But this is a historically accurate movie about people in power, so there were no larger roles available for women in it. Right. There's There's really only three female roles in this if you want to count Vanessa Redgrave as Anna Boleyn and she I would challenge that she has a speaking part she may have one line but other than singing and giggling it's more of a cameo than anything yeah it's no surprise that her nomination was for Morgan and not for this because there just wasn't enough there that's not exactly she did well in her part but yeah, there just wasn't enough to base a nomination judgment on. Next category is Best Story and Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen. That went to A Man and a Woman, beating out Blow Up, The Fortune Cookie, Khartoum, and The Naked Prey. Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium went to A Man for All Seasons, beating out Alfie, The Professionals, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Best Foreign Language Film went to A Man and a Woman, beating out The Battle of Algiers, Loves of a Blonde, Pharaoh, and Three. Best Documentary Feature went to The War Game, beating out The Face of a Genius, Helicopter Canada, The Really Big Family, and Le Volcan Interdit. Best Documentary Short Subject went to A Year Toward Tomorrow, beating out Adolescence, Cowboy, The Odds Against, and Resletek, J.S. Bach, Matei Passojabol, which I hope I didn't do too terribly poorly at. Best Short Subject Live Action went to Wild Wings, beating out Turkey the Bridge and The Winning Strain. Best Short Subject Cartoons went to A Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass Double Feature, beating out The Drag and The Pink Blueprint. Best Original Musical Score went to Born Free, and John Barry composed it, beating out The Bible in the Beginning, Hawaii, The Sand Pebbles, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Best Scoring of Music, Adaptation, or Treatment went to A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, beating out The Gospel According to St. Matthew, Return of the Seven, The Singing Nun, or Stop the World I Want to Get Off. The best song was the title track from Born Free, beating out the title track from Alfie, the title track from Georgie Girl, My Wishing Doll from Hawaii, and A Time for Love from An American Dream. Best Sound Effects, Grand Prix, beat out Fantastic Voyage. Best Sound, Grand Prix beat out Gambit, Hawaii, The Sand Pebbles, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Now, in the final year 
that black and white and color have separate awards. We have Best Art Direction Black and White going to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Beating Out the Fortune Cookie, The Gospel According to St. Matthew is Perrin's Burning and Mr. Budwing. And Best Art Direction Color, Fantastic Voyage, Beat Out Gambit, Juliet of the Spirits, The Oscar and the Sand Pebbles. Best Cinematography, Black and White, went to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Beating Out the Fortune Cookie, Georgie Girl, Is Paris Burning or Seconds? And Best Cinematography, Color, went to A Man for All Seasons, Beating Out Fantastic Voyage, Hawaii, The Professionals, and The Sand Pebbles. Best Costume Design, Black and White, went to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Beating Out the Gospel According to St. Matthew, Mandragola, Mr. Bodwig, and Morgan. And Best Costume Design Color went to A Man for All Seasons, Beating Out Gambit, Hawaii, Juliet of the Spirits, and the Oscar. Best Film Editing went to Grand Prix, Beating Out Fantastic Voyage, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, The Sand Pebbles, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And Best Visual Effects went to Fantastic Voyage, Beating Out Hawaii. Honorary Awards went to Yakima Kanut for Achieving as a Stuntman and for Developing Safety Devices to Pretend Stuntman Everywhere and to Y. Frank Freeman for unusual and outstanding service to the Academy during his 30 years in Hollywood. The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to Robert Wise. The Gene Hirschholt Humanitarian Award went to George Bagnall. So, in the end, we have 13 nominations for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, eight each for Man for All Seasons and the Sand Pebbles, and a few other multi-award winners, or nominees, but for the multi-award winners, A Man for All Seasons won five, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf won four, Grand Prix won three, and then Born Free, Fantastic Voyage, and A Man and a Woman won two each. Okay. So before we go back to the big top ones, I I just wanted to say a little bit about Yakima Kanut. A lot of people may not be familiar with his name, but he was extremely deserving of this award. He was probably the preeminent stuntman of the 20s and 30s his career did go all the way back to the silent era his uh signature stunt which has been copied and aped over and over and over again anytime you see a carriage or a wagon being drawn by a team of horses and they go wild and someone has to jump down into the body of horses to try to catch the reins and manually slow them down, he he was the first one to originate that stunt. Yeah, I'm looking at his IMDb here, and he's he started as a rodeo star. And yeah, he looks like he ended up doing a lot of the stunts that were done by characters played by John Wayne. Mm-hmm. So yeah, his selected filmography starts in 1919 and ends in 1975. So yeah, that's quite the career. All right, so... Let us go back to, of course, the big ones, the best picture. Again, I am looking forward to the days when our baby's a little more independent so I could start watching multiple nominees again. So once more, the two I knew from reputation beyond Man for All Seasons were Alfie and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. But uh, Man for All Seasons is the only one I've seen. How about you, Trey? I don't think I've seen Alfie. I've seen The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and... For because I kind of felt like it would be the biggest contender, I watched Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf for the first time for this recording, just based off of personal preferences and biases. I think the Academy got it right this year. If they had gone the way of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, 
I would not have had any heartburn over it. I'm by no means someone who doesn't like black and white, but I found A Man for All Stevens to be a much richer and lesser film. I preferred the cinematography on it. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is a much more vulgar and brash and dingy film. And it 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 should be, it's supposed to be, so it's not like the filmmakers did anything wrong. But just kind of going more towards my preferences for this period in history and whatnot, I'd give it to A Man for All Seasons. The Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. This is going to sound like an insult, and I don't necessarily mean it as such. It's a cute film. But I think when you cover the letterbox and the IMDb films that came out this year, it doesn't belong in this hunt. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. And I think when I was mentioning some of the trivia, I forgot to mention that Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is the second film following 1931 Cimarron to be nominated in every eligible category. And it's the first film to get an acting nomination for every credited cast member, which I think is a record that's going to stand for a long time because there's not many films that have such a small cast that that's even doable. That definitely is a bit of a standout from the nominations and we'll we'll see how history racks these up after we go through the Golden Globes. Anyway, you had something you wanted to say first, I think? Well, no, I was just going to say for Best Director well, I, I'm not saying he's not deserving and this isn't the first time we've covered a Fred Zinnemann film winning Best Academy Award. I, I found it when you were saying that Fred Zinnemann said that he had very little to do because of the quality of his cast, I went, well, maybe that's a surefire way to win Best Director then, because him winning here, it struck me, and I can't say that this is the first time, but there's a wide disparity between what got awarded or nominated for Best Picture and the films that were nominated for Best Director. I've seen three of the films here, Blow Up came up on my list for a different watch, for a different watching exercise I'm doing. So I, I had watched Blow Up this month as well, which it's an interesting film. It's perhaps a little bit too artistic for my liking and what the, it, it has a very vague ending, I, I guess is the way I'll sum it up. And it's also, we talked about how sparse Vanessa Redgrave's part was in A Man for All Seasons. She's the female lead in Blow Up. So between that, Morgan, and A Man for All Seasons, she did have a very busy year. Okay. Yeah, and Blow Up will come up because it was nominated for the the best foreign film. And looking at, you know, the respect it's had from the Criterion Collection and in the film ball groups I'm in, that seems like if they were to pick best foreign language film this year, it would have been between uh, sorry, Battle of Algiers and Blow Up. Blow Up wasn't nominated for the foreign language film. So is it in English or is it? It's in English. It's the first English film for an Italian director. Okay. So that could be why it wasn't nominated in that category. Yeah. And the and it, the, the setting is in London. Okay. The best way I can care about, uh, the best way I can describe it is ultimately it's a mystery that doesn't care about resolving the mystery. And I think that's where it lost me. Okay, yeah, because the synopsis I've seen is that it's a photographer who accidentally catches the moment of death on film. And that's all it has is the premise. We could talk more off recording. I, I don't know how much of it you would want spoiled before watching it, so I'm, I'm trying to be guarded. But I, I found 
a lot of people who are probably more intelligent than I have gathered a lot of meaning out of the ending, but I found it very unsatisfying. Okay. Yeah, we can talk more after I've seen it, because I think it might be in one of the box sets I got from Criterion that I'm still working through. I have a habit of buying movies faster than I can make time to watch them. Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, should we move on to the Golden Globes? Yes. All right. So this ceremony was performed in February, or February 15th, 1967, to be precise. The best film drama, Man for All Seasons, beat out Born Free, The Professionals, The Sand Pebbles, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And the best film comedy or musical, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, beat out a funny thing happened on the way to a forum, Gambit, not with my wife, you don't, and you're a big boy now. So aside from Alfie, all four of the Academy's nominations are represented here. It's so wrong that the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, beat a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Okay. Perhaps we just don't, you can't look at that, that Cold War comedy the same way as they did in 1966. Anyway, best actor drama. They also gave it to Paul Schofield for A Man for All Seasons, beating out Richard Burton for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Michael Caine for Alfie, Steve McQueen for The Sand Pebbles, and Max von Sydow for Hawaii. Best Actress Drama went to Anokani for A Man and a Woman, beating out Ida Kaminsky for The Shop on Main Street, Virginia McKellar for Born Free, Elizabeth Taylor for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and Natalie Wood for This Property is Condemned. Best Actor went for Comedy or Musical went to Alan Arkin for The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Beating out Alan Bates for Georgie Girl, Michael Caine for Gambit, Lionel Jeffries for A Spy with a Cold Nose, and Walter Matthau for The Fortune Cookie. Good year for Michael Caine, too, with Gambit and Alfie. Uh, Best Actress in Comedy or Musical, that went to Lynn Redgrave for Georgie Girl. Beating out Jane Fonda for Any Wednesday, Elizabeth Hartman for You're a Big Boy Now, Shirley MacLaine for Gambit, and Vanessa Redgrave for Morgan. Best Supporting Actor went to Richard Attenborough for The Sand Pebbles. Beating out Mako for The Sand Pebbles, John Saxon for Appaloosa, George Seagal for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and Robert Shaw for A Man for All Seasons. Best Supporting Actress went to Jocelyn Lagarde for Hawaii, beating out Sandy Dennis for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Vivian Merchant for Alfie, Geraldine Page for Your Big Boy Now, and Shelley Winters for Alfie. Best Director went to Fred Zinneman for A Man for All Seasons, beating out Louis Gilbert for Alfie, Claude Lelouch for A Man and a Woman, Mike Nichols for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and Robert Wise for The Sand Pebbles. Best Screenplay went to A Man for All Seasons, by Robert Bolt adapting his own play, beating out Alfie, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, Sand Pebbles, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Best Music Original Score went to Elmer Bernstein for Hawaii, beating out contributions from A Man and a Woman, Is Paris Burning, The Bible in the Beginning, and The Sand Pebbles. I should note Jerry Goldsmith did the score for The Sand Pebbles. He was also nominated for the Academy Award. Best Original Song, this went to Strangers in the Night from A Man Could Get Killed, which I don't believe was nominated for the Oscar. It was not. That beat out the title track from A Man and a Woman, the title track from Born Free, title track from Alfie, and the title track from Georgie Girl. For the best TV show, I Spy beat out The Fugitive, The Man from Uncle, Run for Your Life, and That Girl. Yeah, see, they got that wrong. Yeah, I've only seen a couple episodes of each of the first three. So that I saw one episode of I Spy as a kid and enjoyed it. I, but I, I haven't seen it recently enough to judge it overall for what was happening in that season of The Fugitive and The Man from U.N.C.L.E. But I would say The Fugitive and The Man from U.N.C.L.E. are both better remembered even before we knew what we now know about Bill Cosby. Yep. Best TV star male went to Dean Martin for The Dean Martin Show, beating out 
Nominees Bill Cosby for I Spy, Robert Culp for I Spy, Ben Gazzara for Run for Your Life, and Christopher George for The Rat Patrol. That one I might be tempted to go with Robert Culp just because I find it hard not to go with Robert Culp when you're looking at his work. Because I'm not as familiar with I Spy, but The Outer Limits, Columbo, you know, he even did a good job in uh, Greatest American Hero, which was campy on purpose. Yes, I wonder though if people knew how much of an act Dean Martin was putting on. Because once you know that the uh, that a lot of the kind of swinging drunk playboy thing was kind of the character he played, the persona that he put on, and then when I see him in some of his stuff, like a few of the westerns he did, I think Dean Martin's a much better actor than a lot of people give him credit for. That's very possible, because, yeah. People used to think that, oh yeah, he wasn't really acting in his movies, but no, he was acting in his movies just like he was acting when you saw him as quote-unquote himself. Yeah. For people who want to know more about that, I highly recommend the recent podcast season of You Must Remember This that went through Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. I say recent. I think they've got at least two more seasons planned by the time this podcast gets released. But yeah, there's an excellent few of them there. The last of the Golden Globes for the year went to Best TV Star Female, and that was Marlo Thomas for That Girl, beating out Phyllis Diller for The Pruitts of Southampton, Barbara Eden for I Dream of Jeannie, Elizabeth Montgomery for Bewitched, and Barbara Stanwyck for The Big Valley. So did you have any other comments about the Golden Globes? Do they show, just because we were often surprised with it, do they show who, like, the best newcomers for this year, or did they not have those listed? Yeah, that category is no longer present. I think they dropped it. Oh, okay. So, shall we look at how these nominees fared historically on the IMDb and on Letterboxd? Yes. So, of the nominees, the highest rated film on the IMDb listings, if we do anything that came out in 1961 that is a feature film with a minimum of 1,000 votes, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf came in at number 8, and then A Man for All Seasons comes in at number 19. So there's a little bit of a gap there. The Sand Pebbles is at 27, and then Alfie and The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming both end up in the 70s. So The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming comes in at number 72, and Alfie comes in at number 75. Now, the top-rated movie of the year in that number 1 spot is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly directed by Sergio Leone. If we compare this to the Letterboxd ratings, of the Academy Award nominees, the highest rated is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is the fifth best movie of the year. The second highest rated nominee is A Man for All Seasons, which is the 69th best rated movie of the year. And then the other three nominees don't even appear in the first 72. And some of them are very well buried because they're below the average rating for those that have enough votes for this year. Notably, the number one pick for the year on Letterboxd is also The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And it's followed by Persona, Andre Rublev, and The Battle for Algiers, which was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, but did not win. And Battle for Algiers was number sixth, also behind Andre Rublev. So it looks like those two, and Persona, is there as well, directed by Ingmar Bergman. I have not seen Persona, but I have not seen an Ingmar Bergman film that I have not loved. So I'm going to say that, yeah, that probably deserves the number three spot. Persona is one of those films that I just don't understand. I've seen it, and 
I'm not quite sure what Bergman's trying to say in it. So it, it's one of those things to where I'm I am willing to admit that it is my failing as a viewer and not his failing as an artist. But that particular film is perhaps maybe a bit too avant-garde for my taste. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I highly recommend. When I said I thought the Academy got it right with A Man for All Seasons, that was me speaking subjectively to my personal taste. Objectively, I could accept an argument that Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is the superior film. While I don't think um, the performances or even the language has aged horribly, I think what Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf has in its favor is out of all of the films that were nominated this the year that we're talking about, it's probably the most modern in terms of subject matter, which has also probably made it more, I guess, timeless in a way. Not many people will necessarily connect with the story of the Lord Chancellor of England going against the king, trying to override the church, but, you know... A couple stuck in an unhappy marriage with um, someone actively gunning for the husband's job, you know, a wife who got pregnant in order to, who got pregnant and then was married because of the pregnancy and then secretly had an abortion because she didn't want to have kids. And all of those are much more mature, but much more timeless, I guess, subject matter. So like, you could do Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf set in 2022 very easily, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it, it might be something that people have more personal connection to. Because even if they haven't experienced it, they could probably name people who have had at least elements of that right. in their lives. Just very briefly, it is an older college professor and his wife, who is the daughter of the dean of a university hosting a couple which is a younger new professor at the university and his younger wife after at their house for drinks after a late night dinner party that's the best way that the overarching plot could be described and the older wife is very much trying to use the younger professor to either motivate or cult or cuckold her husband the husband feel, or the older husband, the older husband feels threatened by the newer, younger model and viciously picks at flaws and weaknesses in his character and in his marriage. And it's it's that type of a film. OK, perhaps not uplifting, but quality and resonant quality. Yes, but it, it, it it's not. And I mean, even though A Man for All Seasons ends with the title character being beheaded. Ultimately, it did not feel as down as Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf did. Which is saying something. And that reminds me of something else I wanted to mention based on the, the Wikipedia synopsis says that he's beheaded off screen. Sir Thomas More is off screen, but the axe is not. True. So it's, Very true. <laughs> had it been accurate, Thomas More's blood would have been on screen. Because you see the axe swing down and out of frame. Actually, before we get to the recommendations and for our best of 10 picks for the next 10, so did you have any final thoughts on the Academy for this year? I, I look at it and I haven't seen enough to 
really judge, although historically it looks like the Academy made a mistake by not nominating the good, the bad, and the ugly. I, I would agree with that. I, I mean... Yeah, not necessarily saying the good, the bad, and the ugly should have won, but it, based on the way audiences are responding, it deserves to be held in higher esteem than the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, or Alfie. I agree. I got exposed to the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming through my wife. It is something that she had seen when she was younger and enjoyed. Maybe it was the hype that came with it. I I just remember it to be a thoroughly unremarkable film, and for a film that was supposed to be a comedy, not particularly funny, in that there's always a danger with watching older comedies in that you are seeing things that are being presented for the first time in context you're seeing you're seeing maybe for the hundredth time because you've seen a hundred other things rip it off, right? So I, I always find that to be a danger with Laurel and Hardy and Chaplin and Keaton. Sometimes I don't always find their stuff laugh out loud funny, and it's just because I'm seeing what was done for the first time, what I now view as a cliche view filtered through thirty different imitators that I didn't know were imitators when I were was watching The Imitators, right? Yeah, like the the Marx Brothers and their mirror sequence. Exactly. So I don't know if that was what was going on with The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, but for example, I mean, it got got nominated and won Best Original Score. If you wanted to nominate a, a funny film, why didn't you nominate A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum? Or if you wanted something more adult and funny fortune cookie. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't know why the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Is, is there ahead of all of those other, uh, is there ahead of all of those other films? Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you. All right. So who would you recommend this to? I would recommend it to, if, if you like period dramas, I think this is a good film for you. If you're the type of person who, likes historical fiction. And I'm I'm saying fiction because as you said, we don't know how much of this is fictionalized from the real event, so I'll just go ahead and label it historical fiction. I think this would be good. You know, if you're the type of person if you're the type of person who um enjoys British dramas, this isn't an entirely British cast. There's, you know, a few Australians in the mix, but by and large this is uh, British production, I, I think this would be a winner for anyone in those categories. Yeah, I, I would agree. Like I said, it didn't jump out of me as a Best Picture candidate when I watched it, but it is solid. Like I said, I, I can't point to anything that could have been improved. So if you have any interest in the subject matter, if you have interest in subtle but witty dialogue or in just the performance of the actors, you should check it out. I'm sure that there are people who are you know, involved in these specific churches here that, that are represented that would find it enjoyable. Probably those who are on the side of Thomas More rather than the side of Henry VIII would find it more enjoyable, but still it is interesting to see how this really led to events now. I mean, the, the Protestant faith or the Protestant version of Christianity really started in this era because Henry VIII wanted a son. Mm-hmm. And the biology of what makes that happen was not sufficiently understood for someone to be able to 
tell the king, no, you're wrong. And it's also interesting if you've read and enjoyed Utopia, it might be interesting to get a look at the author. I've been tempted to read Utopia after seeing this just because of that. Because I'd heard that, because, you know, my high school English teacher said that, well, yeah, Utopia is not Utopia for everyone because they still had slaves. Although looking into Utopia since this, I found out the slaves in that book are not chosen to be slaves because of their skin color or heritage. They are uh, criminals or prisoners of war. And children born to slaves are not slaves themselves. They are born free. So it is better than a lot of the slavery that was out at the time, but it's still slavery. Anyway, so uh, since this is the 39th annual Academy Awards and the first ceremony had two winners, that means we have gone through our 40 winners. So as we're doing with each set of 10, we are picking our top 10 of the, or the top of the last 10 and the weakest film of the last 10. So just to recap for the listeners, we are choosing between The Bridge on the River Kwai, Gigi, Ben-Hur, The Apartment, West Side Story, Lawrence of Arabia, Tom Jones, My Fair Lady, The Sound of Music, and A Man for All Seasons. Uh, so Trey, have you got your top pick? I do, with a very strong runner-up, but I, I think I'm going to stick with The Apartment as my top pick. Okay. I'll be curious, what's your runner-up? My runner-up was The Bridge on the River Kwai. I was really surprised by that film. It was similar to From Here to Eternity to where, just based off of the snippets that I had seen, the movie that I got wasn't the movie that I was expecting in a good way. Since I really started aggressively experiencing film on my own shortly after high school, the apartment's just been a long time of love so ultimately i decided to kind of pick that to give that the slight edge because of nostalgia but bridge on the river Kwai was my runner up okay so we agree on the runner up my top pick was the sound of music okay and my pick for the weakest of the 10 is west side story which is probably making paul spataro cringe listening to this right now but i do want to emphasize it's not because it's a weak film it's because these 10 as a whole are very strong. So it was the weakest of these 10, but there's no chance when we're done all 100 films, we pick our weakest of the full 100, that it's going to come out that way. There are definitely weaker films that we have seen. It's just, I, I don't think it's as strong as the other nine this, in this decade. I, I went Gigi. And that was my runner-up. <laughs> um, just because... And it's not like it's not like I have anything against musicals, so I, I certainly don't want that to come across. But we're in the midst of what I would call the epic era of Hollywood, right? Even The Sound of Music and My Fair Lady, I would call musical epics. The the way they were produced and the way that they were put together, I I just found Gigi to be the lesser film. My runner up for lesser i'm not gonna say worst in in a group like this you can't say like worst film right my my runner up for lesser film is probably been her all right so there we go and so the next batch of 10 it may be really tough to pick a lesser film i have already seen half of these and i'm looking forward to the other half so next month we are kicking off our next 10 films with in the heat of the night 
which is one I have been eagerly anticipating, but I've been putting off watching so that it'll specifically so that'll be my first viewing when we discuss it. And the other nine films in that decade are Oliver, Midnight Cowboy, Patton, The French Connection, The Godfather, The Sting, The Godfather Part Two, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Rocky. Ah, the five of those that I saw and rated on Letterboxd and IMDb, every one of the five was rated as a 4.5 out of 5. So so in the next decade, we're going to have one favorite and nine runner-ups, is what we're saying. I don't think we can pick a lesser. Yeah, the next decade is going to be a, a tough one. But that means we got a lot to look forward to when we're watching the movies for this podcast. Oh, and we're only two away from the year that we've said may break the podcast, 1968. Excellent. Yep, that that is definitely coming. So, yeah, and by the time we hit Rocky, our podcast will be half done. We will have covered 50 of the first 100 Best Picture winners. Yeah, we're as we're recording this, we're a week away from the 2022 ceremony for 2021. Yeah, so at the time of this recording, the last film that we know that we're going to be discussing is Nomadland. There are still six winners to be determined, and we'll be figuring out one of them. We'll see which one. I may have to go shopping, because there are ten nominees, and so far I own three. I'm hoping to actually watch one of them this afternoon. I'm curious, which one? Dune. Yeah, Denis Villeneuve's Dune. I'm going in, and I... I think it's the strength of where we are just because of the pandemic with streaming and everything. I'm going into this year with a much more solid viewing. I think I've seen at least half of the nominees already, and there are two that I don't have access to yet. Which two? Uh, Belfast has come out on DVD, but I haven't rented it or I haven't rented it yet. Um, I don't think Licorice Pizza has come out on streaming or DVD yet. Coda and Don't Look Up and The Power of the Dog, all three originated on streaming. So Coda was Apple TV Plus and Don't Look Up and The Power of the Dog or Netflix. Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, Nightmare Alley have all been on HBO Max. And West Side Story, the newer West Side Story, is on both Hulu and Disney Plus in the States right now. Right, which are essentially one service in Canada. We don't have Hulu, but a lot of the Hulu library appears on our Disney Plus. So yeah, they, those are, are there. And you are correct that Belfast is out on DVD and Blu-ray. That is one of the ones I own but haven't watched yet. So Belfast was my mother's hometown. Oh, okay. That'll be interesting to see. But there we go. So we will be back in uh, the 28th the next month to uh, cover In the Heat of the Night. So and we know Trey's love for Rod Steiger, so it'll be interesting to see how that conversation goes. Yeah, this is a good one. And, you know, we, not at the time that people, that our listeners are listening to it, but at the time that we're recording this, we've recently lost Sidney Poitier. And this will be our first opportunity to really talk about him as well as an actor. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we've got a lot to look forward to next month. And then, as we said, 1968 has the potential 
to be our most divisive podcast. The last time we had that potential was the greatest show on earth. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so join us again in a month's time. And just for the sake of completeness, it is worth noting that In the Heat of the Night was up against Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle, The Graduate, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So this is the first time in a long time when all five nominees are still a part of the cultural conversation. Yes. And this is, what, 60 or 54 years later? And all of them, I'll go ahead and say it. I I don't know how many of them I will rewatch for the recording, but this is the first time in a while to where I've seen all of the nominees. Like, I mean, obviously I'll rewatch In the Heat of the Night, and I know I'm going to rewatch Bonnie and Clyde. I don't know if I'll get to guess who's coming to dinner or The Graduate or not. Yeah, but no plans to rewatch Dr. Doolittle. Yeah, I may be tipping my hand there a little bit. <laughs> okay. Well, meanwhile, thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get.